in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. Well, welcome everyone to the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. Today we have Miles Wakeham with us. He is from Australia who migrated to the USA in 1989 and he became a multimillionaire. He lives 100% free and unconstrained life, no job, never graduated high school, let alone went to college. So I, I saw his profile and about him and I wanted him to have to be on the show because I think he has a very different view of some things that a lot of us kind of just take as as pretty normal set in stone ways of looking at life and how to be successful. And I'm always a guy that likes to hear different differing opinions. And so I think we got the perfect guy today uh, to talk about some of these things. So thanks for joining us, Miles. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So Miles, you never graduated high school, never went to college, and yet you're living a pretty much free, hundred percent free, independent life being independently wealthy. How'd you get there? Tell me the journey that took you, that brought you here. Um, it's really easy. <laughs> um, don't listen to what everyone else tells you and you'll do just great. That's it. Short, we're done here. <laughs> we're done. That was the fastest podcast ever. I think that's the definition of the contrarian, right? Miles. Totally. Totally. Um, all right. So Back in the day, I was uh, born in Australia in a town called Adelaide on the south central coast in the 60s uh, at a time when there were no technologies and rules and basically Australia was a big farming colony. Uh, we mined a lot. We dug stuff out of the ground and sold it to everybody and that's how we paid the bills. But for the most part, it was a, a pretty basic lifestyle. You know, and I grew up in that as a kid. So rather than having, you know, what we today would probably give our kids, which would be a tablet or a smartphone or a Xbox or whatever it is, I had a bicycle and a big amount of land and open field and a bunch of neighbors. And I lived that what we called free range kid lifestyle, you know. So, you know, my, my uh, adventures on the weekend, other than learning to play sports, we're just going into the, into the gullies and the valleys near us with my neighbors and our friends and riding bicycles and pretending we were cowboys or warriors or whatever it was that you did as a kid. And that was, you know, how my life started. But back at home, my mother and my father were concert pianists. They were both musicians. And so I was raised in a fairly strict, disciplined lifestyle of classical music. Uh, I learned to play the violin at the age of five and by about 11, I was in the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra in the junior symphony orchestra. And then um, because I found myself coming out of that and going into high school, I was really odd because I went into high school as this like, accomplished violinist uh, who didn't really belong anywhere. <laughs> um, you know, and that, that was how I got through most of my school. I just skated on music. I uh, didn't have to study that hard because I just got straight A's in music. So I just bumbled through high school that way. But I think what happened, I think is being raised in a musical family is you learn sensitivity, you learn uh, how to observe things and turn them into messages, I guess is the right way of putting it. A lot of songwriters will use it as 
as fodder for writing music. Poets will use it as fodder for writing poems and write, book authors will use it for their work. But for me, I just sort of took it all in and I was really astute and sensitive person. So I learned about electronics early on. I realized that they had this whole world of power and sort of mystique to it that wasn't normal. So I became a computer geek. And by the age of 15, I'd bought one of the first ever personal computers that were ever invented in the late 70s and started building a, an understanding and a, and a sensitivity to writing software. And uh, that turned into a business that I eventually said to my father, hey, there's no point in me finishing high school here. I can go out and make a lot of money writing software. And somehow I got his blessing and I did. And that's where it all started. Oh, very cool. That's a, that's a, that's a great start to the, to the story. And I know there's a lot of twists and turns to the story and different things going on. Um, so when you, so is the software in the background from the technology standpoint, is that what got you uh, affiliated with, uh, Amgen, uh, the biotech corporation? Yeah, we'd have to fast forward about maybe about 10 years there. Um, so what happened was I started a software company in Adelaide and it did very well. Uh, I was not even 20 and I was employing a dozen people and doing work for the government and defense contractors and everybody who had a buck, I, I'd go after it. Um, but even in those days, despite the fact that we were kind of like, it was one of those supply and demand things there were not many people like me supplying software service and a big demand all of a sudden just came upon us. So we just wrote it. But when I was about, I guess about 25, I started to get really bored with it. Um, I sort of felt like I'd done it all, and I, which I hadn't, but at that age you felt like you did because I'd been through so many different industries and, and companies and, you know, places that most people in their life would never even get a chance to go into or touch or be associated with. I mean, I was writing software for like the attorney general's department and then mm. cryogenic freezer storage labs and defense contracts, building submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. Um, when you're living amongst those sort of environments, it's great. And then at some point you're kind of going, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I mean, I've done it, right? So I ended up taking some time off and I went on vacation, flew to Hawaii and, you know, 25 year old kid met a girl. What are you going to do? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, ended up getting married, uh, moved to Los Angeles. Um, that was in 89 and then, uh, found myself in a very different world. So here's imagine this, right? I've come from this world where, this kid who never graduated high school, but happened to be pretty good with computers or whatever, made a go of it successfully. I mean, you know, put, paid the mortgage for 12 people and put food on their table and gave them a chance to better themselves in something. And I wasn't even 25. So I thought, well, if I could carry that into the United States, I mean, wouldn't that be what people want, right? That's the ideal kind of entrepreneurial spirit that America is founded on. No way in hell, buddy. <laughs> you, you land in Los Angeles and you're driving around trying to get a job, even though you've got a green card, they're looking at you going, well, where's your degree? Right. I'm like, you know, when I started doing this, they didn't even teach computer science at college. 
There was no degree. If you think that I wanted to put four years of my life on hold and miss all the things that I'd done for your little piece of paper, who's the fool here? <laughs> that was right, kind right. of my attitude. It was a little, it wasn't, I wasn't being antagonistic, but I was being like, are you serious? Get real. <laughs> um, do you want some software written or not? Anyway, I went through like 20 interviews, HR department, no degree, get out, no degree, get out, no degree, get out. I'm like, and, and then sometimes you get the, oh, he's got equivalent experience, we, but we can't validate it because it's from Australia. We can't like call him, check his references. No, nah, get out. Okay, fine. After a while, it gets really tiresome. Anyway, one day I find myself in this uh, place in Southern California called Newberry Park or Thousand Oaks. And um, I was told to go to this address for an interview. Uh, and I did. And I turn up and it's a construction site. Like what? <laughs> I come to the wrong place. But there's a mobile trailer over in the corner of the lot. And so I go over there and I knock on the door and I'm like, you know, I'm here for an interview and they're looking, oh yeah, come on in. So I go into this trailer, I go up the back of the trailer and there's a few people sitting around the desk and I sit down and I, you know, tell them what I do. And, and they're like, um, I, I learned this out afterwards. They're, they're thinking on the other side of the desk from me, he's not going to wait to take a job for us. Look, we're in a bloody trailer in a, <laughs> in a construction site, right? And I'm sitting on the other side of the desk going, I've just been through 20 job interviews and they said no because I don't have a degree. And all of a sudden, for some reason, we all got real. They said, well, look, we, we need software development and you've done it. And I'd like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I'm sick and tired of not being able to do what I do because somebody said I don't have a piece of paper. And they looked at themselves and they looked at me and they're like, you're hired. <laughs> so I'm like, good. Cool. I showed up for work and I started working. I didn't realize that was a little startup that became Amgen, the world's biggest biotechnology corporation. And mm -hmm. I happened to be one of the very early guys in there. So I got a hell of a lot of stock options. And when they eventually produced their first uh, approved drug, the company went from nothing to, I think at the end of that year, it was like 3.8 billion in sales in one year. Wow. And I'm sitting on this gold mine. <laughs> I'm like, I, you, you're kidding me, right? So that, that 20 no's came with one hell of a yes in the end. So I thought I would, I'd made it, you know, five years later, we'd build a big corporation and I had more adventures and had a wonderful time, made great friends and just enjoyed the whole thing. Um, and what's weird is that at the same time, I'm still the musician that my parents raised me to be and I'm still hearing music in my head and I'm still resonating with that. And, and as it happened in my teenage years, I picked up an electric guitar and became a guitarist and started playing in bands and thinking that was what I wanted to do. And here I am unexpectedly in Los Angeles. I formed a band with some friends and we started playing up and down the Sunset Strip in Hollywood and we actually got discovered, if you like. We got found by record labels and they'd romance you and do all this rubbish to try to get you to sign and i still had this job you know but i'm i'm like yeah but music's kind of a whole other gig and i want to do that so i met all these people through hollywood that was great and eventually our band broke up and i eventually uh hung out with all these studio guys because i was a technical guy and I, next thing you know i find myself learning I, uh, this one guy it's funny he's a, a producer or 
recording engineer for the Tears for Fears, if you remember back in those days. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he was producing us, like recording our, our band. And when our band broke up, he was kind of without a gig. And, and I was talking to him going, his name's Jeff. And I said, hey, Jeff, um, so what do we do now, mate? <laughs> he goes, well, I tell you what, you know about computers, right? I'm like, yeah. He says, well, my industry, that is recording industry, is going through this uh, transition from what we call analog to digital. From you know the old big recording consoles to to digital recording he says how about you teach me a bit about that and i'll teach you everything i need i know about recording <laughs> like yeah hell yeah so next thing you know in the evenings i'm finding myself in these multi-million dollar big studios all through hollywood and jeff's teaching me everything there is to need to know about recording and the next thing you know, I started getting gigs as assistant engineers and then engineer, and I eventually became like a regular at one studio. And um, everything was, I was thinking I was going to give up the software thing and go back to music full time. So that's what I loved. And I got asked to do this gig for a band that were coming in from out of state uh, at a studio called Grandmaster Recorders in Hollywood. And just before they were about to, about a week before they were about to come in, I get a phone call from Australia. My mum had a big car accident and I had to go down there and take care of her. And that ended up meaning I actually never came back. I, I went down there for about four years. Uh, she had dementia. I didn't realise it. It was like early stage on, sort of, on uh, dementia. And then we had to put her in a home and it was really messy. And then eventually my wife didn't make the transition to Australia like I did. So we ended up getting a divorce. Then I was in a big car accident. I was almost killed in that. Um, it, like every catastrophe you could ever imagine got thrown at me. Um, so you dig yourself up out of that, right? You, you learn that maybe you're not so good after all. <laughs> maybe you're not so invulnerable. You're not so immortal. Like, you know, we'd always love to think we are at the age of 17 or whatever. Um, we're not. We're just biological organisms. And thank God that, you know, I survived it. I ended up years later remarrying, had a daughter, uh, and then got a phone call one day from a, a buddy of mine who used to work with an Amgen who said, there's this thing called the dot-com boom coming. You, you need to get your, back, uh, your butt back over here. So I said, what does it pay? <laughs> and it's like, because I'd lost all my money. You know, here I was a hero at Amgen making, you know, a million dollars by the age of 32, thinking I'd never have to work another day in my life and then halve that with a divorce and then pay all these lawyers' fees for covering your, your butt during a car accident, then all the medical bills that the government won't cover and the rehabilitation costs that are on you, and I'm broke again. Um, hmm. Now, I had a house, so I bought a house with it, but other than that, I'm, I'm broke. So he calls me and I said, yeah, look, you know, sign me up, dude. I'll get on a plane, come over. So I did. I go over there and, and it just happens to be a gig with my old buddy Amgen again. I was back there mm. for a couple of years working as a, as a consultant. I called my wife in Australia up and I said, listen, the money here is just too good. You've got to get, get over here. She's like, I'm up for it. So she gets on a plane and we move back to LA. And I guess I've been back in the States ever since. Um, that, that's kind of chapter two there's other chapters right right and there's there's a lot of things that we could probably delve into and and speak for hours just on some of those stories but what i'm always fascinated about is 
you know, success is relative, right? And it's and it's never it's never just a continuous descent. And so, uh, what I love about the story is that you know you dealt with some tremendous lows, obviously had some highs as well. But I want to get back to the whole, you know, the college education. What what do you tell people when when you hear this about? I mean, you're obviously a good example of someone who didn't have it and they were successful. What what else would you tell them about? if, if they need, if they're considering college versus another path? Well, that's a very American question. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go outside of North America and you go to Europe, Asia, maybe, maybe Asia might be a little different, certainly Australia, college is not a mandatory thing. It is not your gateway ticket to the middle class. You go to college because you want to learn something college teaches you. You want to be a doctor, lawyer, an accountant, whatever, engineer. Those things require college, but just as many people go into an apprenticeship and learn to become carpenters or plumbers or you know car mechanics or electricians or whatever, and either makes good money. If, if you look at the average wage of say a plumber in Australia, they are equal to, if not more than a nurse or a entry level doctor. And so considering that they're not dealing with life you know life and death situations there it's a hard argument to make financially to say well would you like an apprenticeship in which they'll actually pay you to learn and then you'll go out and you'll make the same money as a nurse or do you right. want to lock away four years of your life pay a hell of a lot of money to an educational institution that you don't have to pay back and then come out and you're starting from ground zero at that point, what, what do you want? And as the idea is that, well, you are front loading knowledge to be able to get it back by a greater wage later on. I don't know if that argument holds water anymore. I mean, if you think about it, it I, you know, I, you and I, we're both fathers, right? We have, we, I speak to a lot of my daughter's 25 or 24. So I speak to a lot of her college you know, alma mater and when she was at college, I used to talk to them about stuff and they'd ask me, well, what, what should I do? And I'm like, if you're asking me what the hell you should do with your life and you're still in college, what the hell are you in college for? Right, you should right. have known that answer before you went in. And they go, yeah, but my, you know, my parents told me that I had to do it, you know, or I was going to be a loser or whatever. I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> no. You see, there's a whole lot of bubbles here. There's a whole lot of walls of consciousness that have been built up over centuries that don't hold water to an immigrant like me, and they don't make any sense from an outsider looking in. And I think that's the difference here. The difference is that what you do matters, what your results matter, how you get there, who cares? If you produce great quality results and you and you produce a, a high quality product and you do it with integrity and morality, I don't care what your paper says, what letters you got after your name. It's all BS because at the end of the day, it's you and what you do with your life. There are so many highly qualified graduating losers out there that this proves that our education system is completely messed up. If only the minority of people end up taking a path in life that equals their college major, we've got a serious problem on our hands and the statistics will tell us that's exactly what we've got. Yeah, I, I have those conversations with my daughters. One ended up going to a technical school to 
earn a skill. And what I've always said is just like what you talked about. If, if you're going to go to, if you're going to go to college, you're going to pursue some type of higher education. Let's have a plan. Let's figure out what it's for. Let's figure out why you're doing it. Let's figure out because there's certain skill, a certain degree, you know, career choices that require it. But so many times it's, it's, I mean, think of all the liberal arts colleges that are out there where they don't even give you a, a focused skill. It's basically just a degree, a general degree. And, you know, we look at this and the amount of student debt that it's created and all of this stuff. And, and you're right, a small percentage are actually working in the field that they, um, that they went for their degree. So, and, and we do that, we do that to ourselves too, because, you know, our school system set up for them to have a direction by the time they're 17 or 18. And that's just not feasible for a lot of them. No, the, the thing that's noticeably different with a lot of other countries is that the, the common thing, for example, in Europe, it used to be, I'm not exactly sure if it still is, but the common thing in Europe was you'd finish high school and then you'd go and spend a couple of years just traveling the world. You know, you'd backpack, you'd be a bartender in Tokyo, you'd hike Kilimanjaro, you'd do whatever you had to do. And in that process, you would find yourself facing, I wouldn't say adversity is not the right word, but challenges that would allow you to discover who you were to rise to the occasion. You know, you're, you're in Bali and you don't speak the language. How do you get a place to rent that night? If you're in, uh, I don't know, Bulgaria and you need somewhere to eat, where, how do you do that? I mean, those things bring out the metal in somebody and they bring out the problem solving skills and the things that are necessary in life at all levels, whether it's, oh my God, my irrigation in the backyard broke and I've got to go and fix it and I don't know what I'm doing. Then you draw upon those problem solving skills. You ask for help, you read books, you watch YouTube videos, you do whatever you can and you fix the damn problem. We don't have a society that's built for that anymore. What they do is they, they will pay somebody to do it, which just incurs debt. And then they end up having to defer the payment of that later and later in life. And then they wonder when they get to retirement age, they've got no money to retire. Well, of course you don't. You know, if you just said, okay, I'm going to learn how to fix my car rather than buying a new one, I guarantee you'll be able to retire. Um, simple, pragmatic, old school ways, which still work. And, and the truth about a lot of uh, countries outside of the United States is that because they're not in, engrossed in a world of distraction by technologies and I have to have the, the latest, greatest this and I need to buy this cryptocurrency or I need to have this stock or whatever, because they're not thinking like that, they learn to be very self-sufficient and they learn to get back to the basics of our humanity, what makes us good people and they transcend those struggles and they are unbelievably advanced thinkers uh, and in ways that you would never expect. Yeah. And I want to get to the financial, uh, to, to a couple of those financial things, but you touched on traveling and, and how young ones doing that, but why should everybody have a passport and travel to different countries? because countries are artificial. They're not real. Birds don't see borders. The air doesn't see borders. 
Borders are an artificial construct, with the exception of, of truly geographical borders, such as water around an island, a mountain range, and so on. The rest of it is some sort of historical anthropo anthropological experiment that we humans have given to our elected leaders to try and define territory. When you're a traveler, when you, when you travel the world, you realize the whole thing is just stupid. You can walk from China to Vietnam, well, why is it that there's a border there? Why is it? It's because one country says, this is mine, that is yours. That's it. Well, that's fine if you want to become somebody as a subject of the state and you want to live by that rule set that says that on this side, life is good and on that side, life is bad. But we all know that's BS. And what's weird is that, see, here's the thing, I was not, um, I was not brought up in a United States public education system. I was not, I guess the word would be indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. I was not told this is the best country in the world because it isn't, right? There is no best country in the world. There are a lot of countries and most of those are by their constructs artificial. The fact is that we humans are the best humans in the world. And the truth is that if we embrace that and we don't all try to own each other and, and not address our basic fundamental human psychological flaws of greed, envy, mistrust, uh, you know, all those things that, that, that causes wars and causes, you know, all these things. If we were able to transcend that, we would be living in a utopian planet beyond all belief. But no, we don't. We sit behind our little domain and put up these walls like we're all little, you know, living in apartments in this massive insane asylum. And, and this is our world. And the truth is that that's why people need to travel. They need to realize these borders are artificial. Yeah, okay, you need a passport. It's a little piece of paper. It's a document that your state gives you to give you permission to leave your state. But what do you do when you're, why do they do that? Why do they want you to be a quote citizen? Taxes, control, uh, it's all the things that they want to be able to lasso you in and not let you out. And when somebody becomes hypnotized by that, it's kind of Stockholm syndrome. You know, you're stuck in there and you can't get out because they won't let me get out because I don't have a passport. Okay. Well, if you don't know that there's, there's no dragons on the other side of the mountain that they're telling you there is, that there's only new experiences and new things for you to learn. When you get that, when you take that red pill, you're going to go rush into your state department and going to get a passport. But if you're listening to that nightly news about, oh, don't go to Mexico, they'll cut your head off. Or, you know, the cartels will, ex, you know, kidnap you or no, it doesn't work like that. Um, and the same, you know, don't go to, you know, fill in the country of choice here, but there's always somewhere they don't want you to go. And you have to look and go, why are they telling me not to go there? Why, why what's it in their interest for me not to go there? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, Maybe they don't like that place, or maybe they've got a beef over something, or maybe they don't want me leaving because I might not pay taxes or I might not, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons here. The individual, you and I, go out there, travel, 
and and I'm not talking about going and staying in Club Med somewhere. I'm you know I'm saying go and travel, and then you start seeing the world, and you come back with these experiences like that place is pretty damn cool. <laughs> Those people are amazing. Um, they have the best food. They have the greatest you know this that. Hell yeah, I want to be there. And then you get the bug, and it never leaves you. Yeah, and it and it opens up your mind to different cultures, different way points of view. And you realize that what you're fed sometimes in your own country, there's a phrase that's been used that has been told to me, healthy dose of skepticism. And that's a good phrase I always have in the back of my head when I listen to any type of news program anymore. It's like, all right, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to be skeptical that it's 100% uh, true, because we all know everybody has their own motivators. Yeah. So I want to get to the financial piece, because obviously someone like you, who's, you know, gone this, uh, what, you know, the, the U.S. would say is a non-traditional way of becoming financially independent. First, you know, we talk about financial s- sustainability. And to you, what is financial sustainability? Where your income comes in in excess of your expenses going out without you having to generate any, well, let's call it toil or labor, or even have to be there for it to happen. So you're talking about passive income is what you're saying is greater than your uh, expensive. Yeah, but that term's been abused and homogenized right. so much. Um, I'm just talking about making money, which requires less than five to 10% of your time commitment to make the money. So, okay, case in point, COVID, right? We just had Mm -hmm. X years of COVID and uh, various parts of our country got locked down to the point where people couldn't earn money, they couldn't go to work. Um, A lot of people fell back on government assistance getting through that or they maybe had employers that uh, allowed them to furlough. uh, And again, because the employers were getting government assistance to allow them to do that. But one way or another, the... um, the reality was we all came face to face with a situation where we could not toil. You know, if you were a taxi driver, good luck. You're out of business. Right. You know, in those worlds, if you're not earning your income through a form that could sustain at least six months of that, I will tell you you're doing it wrong. And that is because if you get sick or if you get, uh, you know, the society around you limits your ability to do that. You want to be in a situation where you still have income. Not that it's okay to say, look, I've saved up six months of emergency savings or whatever I could fall back on that. Yeah. Okay. Then your six months of emergency savings poorer. I'm talking about making money every month consistently, predictably in the safest possible manner when you didn't have to do anything to make it. And if you do have to do something to make it, that's fine if it's your choice. But if it's take, if that's not a choice that you've got to go, you've got to schlep to a job or whatever, then you're doing it wrong. And financial sustainability is about getting your numbers right, knowing your expenses and getting them down as low as you possibly can initially, and then working out a way to earn money that exceeds that by about 150%. And then as that money gradually starts gearing itself up as it does, then you start raising your expenses accordingly and you raise your living standard at that point. Um, 
if a 20 year old takes that advice and decides to do that from day one, by 40, they're probably multimillionaires and they never have to worry about money ever again. Um, but most don't. So is it, is it just looking for, so let's say I'm, I'm somebody who's 20 and I'm wanting to go that path. What do I look for? What are the opportunities that I can start building that? Is it just real estate? Is it investments? Is it, uh, I mean, obviously you, <clears throat> you had a scenario with a company that you got in at the ground floor that uh, helped you from a equity standpoint, probably, but what, what options do they have? What, what should they look for? Anything that uh, is aut autonomous is ideal. Um, in a 21st century uh, style, one would argue anything, everything is starting to become autonomous these days. Um, two, two phrases help make this work out. The firstly, the rich don't have jobs. So jobs aren't going to cut it. You could, you've got to become rich and that means you can't have a job. Number two is your assets have to pay you to own them. So assets that pay you to own them, there are many, many assets that pay you to own them. Uh, dividend paying stocks, buying a vending machine pays you to own it. Um, web applications that pay things, licenses that pay you every month because of something that you front loaded on effort, uh, royalties. Um, and the biggest one is real estate, rental real estate. The rents is the real estate paying you to own it. Those things alone, if you, all you did was you started spending your time in those fields and, and, you know, do a number of them because the economies change and ebbs and flows and whatever. But if you were doing those things right, uh, after a while, you will have built up enough inertia that you would have enough money coming in where you could have, firstly, a serious dent in your expenses would be paid for by these things. And as they gear up, you'll cross that Rubicon when eventually your income exceeds your expenses. And that is when you are, in the true sense of the term, financially free. And you don't measure it in a dollar asset measurement. You don't say, oh, I've got a million dollars, I can retire. No, you've got a million dollars. What can you do with the million dollars to generate you income? And you remove the word retirement completely from your syntax. There's, no ever, there's never a need to retire when your assets are paying you to own them. You just get to that threshold crossover point where the income exceeds the expenses and then you're financially sustainable. That's the goal because you could do that at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. It, at some point, your income will exceed your expenses and you'll be financially sustainable. But if you never even begin that path, you'll never get there, period. You just won't do it. And everyone's out there to stop you from doing it, by the way, everything. You have got every boss out there wanting you to spend more time at work and keep your attention on their problems, not your own. You've got every government out there demanding more of your money in terms of tax revenue, sales tax, property tax, capital gains tax, income tax, whatever. You've got inflation devaluing the asset, capital asset value of most of the assets which we hold. All these things are out to get you. It's like trying to swim with sharks. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't get wet. You've got to go out there and you've got to be able to give this thing a shot because if you don't give this thing a shot, the guarantee is that you won't get there and you'll be like 70, uh, yes, 72% of all 
Americans at 65, they cannot afford to retire, period. So I think with real estate, sometimes individuals shy away from that type of investment because of they always think of the added work of dealing with tenants and dealing with repairs and just having to deal with that frustration and aggravation. Is that something that you dealt with? Did you at one time and now you have moved on uh, and utilize a real estate management company? What, what, what do you do? We've done most of it ourselves for our own property. We've managed 30 odd doors in Phoenix and my wife and I did it. Um, let me ask you a question. Would you, given the choice, would you spend 50 hours a week of your waking hours life giving that time to somebody else to earn money? Or would you spend five or 10 hours per week dealing with a couple of tenants who need their water heater fixed when it broke, blew up or that, you know, you have to send out late notices on the rent? What's easier? Yeah, I think I think most people are looking at it from the standpoint of they're still having to work that that normal job while right. starting to get going on it, right? So then it's on top of 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 the normal work that they're doing for their job. So sure. I, I understand, sure. you know, you get to that point where now that's providing you the income that you need, then it's a you know, a small percentage of your time. Yeah, it, it, my natural inclination is to say suck it up buttercup. <laughs> You, you want to get rich? No one's given you anything. Right, Deal right. with it, right? That's my natural inclination. If I retreat back from that point, and I try and be a bit more human about it, um, life is struggle, right? Some countries, some cultures are better to deal with struggle than we are. The bottom line is that you're not going to get money. You know, you're not going to go to the moon because of something you're brother-in-law told you to buy and you're not going to no, there's no there's no shortcut in life if you accept that and then you embrace the process and you enjoy the process all of a sudden it's not work and then you just don't care and you know if you're worried about you know your tenants are complaining about blah 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 then talk to your tenants What's going on in their world? Why are they having such a hard time? Sure, we'll fix the water heater, but tell me what's going on in your world. And they'll start telling you stories. They'll tell you about the struggles they're dealing with. I had a tenant once call me up and said, I don't think I can pay my rent net, you know, for the next three months, I lost my job. And I said to them, what, did you, what do you do? You know, what, well, I, I'm a, uh, a I think she was a therapist. I'm a therapist and I said, well, you know, you ever thought of doing like, maybe like Zoom therapy, remote therapy? You could do it from your home, there's internet there. Yeah, I gave that some thought, but I never really thought of it. I said, listen, you, you go to, you know, these sites like um, Upwork or Freelancer or, you know, these sites and just put your name out there and just see what happens. She calls me back two weeks, says, I've got the rent. I'm like, cool, great. And I wanted to thank you for telling me to do that because guess what? I've just decided that's what I want to do for the rest of my life because I'm making five times more money than I made at my job. Right? Yep. This is what we do. We solve problems. And I go back to that kid learning to order lunch in Tokyo when they don't speak Japanese and learning how to solve problems. 
So you solve problems, you can solve it for yourself, but you can solve it for other people too, or you can help them help themselves. I mean, at the end of the day, that's how it works. And then all of a sudden, you'll be a very happy landlord. You'll be getting your rent, your tenants are not going to be calling you up, yelling and screaming at you because the air conditioner went out. No, they're, they're going to be decent because they kind of thought, well, you know, when I was down, that guy kind of helped me out or that girl kind of helped me out. That's how we are. We're human beings. We've lost that. Yeah. That's what I've, I, I've been very clear with my, with both of my older daughters telling them, you know, you go to get any type of education, you learn any type of skill. That's great. But it, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships, building relationships with people, building, because those things are going to help you in whatever, whatever facet of life you're in. If you, if people always look at you and they're like, you know, that person they, they really care about me. They know what I'm going through. I like that person. Things are so much easier than when you're that person that they say, that person doesn't care about me. They, they never do anything for me. It, it's, it's never going to go as easy as if you're, it, it, unless you're building those relationships. So that's a great point. Well, you're right on. So one last question. So debt, we talked about debt and you talked about having debt that helps to still pay you to pay some of the debt, right? When you're talking about real estate. So why, but then there's also this other type of debt that clearly in this country we're, we're saddled with. So why is the wrong sort of debt toxic for an individual to have? Well, we all want to impress people we don't know, don't like, don't care about because we buy the big house and we buy the big car and we send our kid to the right college, whatever that is. <laughs> And we, and we do that because we feel it validates us, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, there's a whole lot of rules in banking, which most people never really get a chance to associate with, but think about it this way. Um, your government has a, a legal right over its citizenry up until the point of its border. And then beyond that, you know, you're kind of a sovereign individual. You're out on your own. They're, with the exception of taxes in the US because they can tax you really well, but that's part of the story. Um, but they can't, you know, financially, the limits are kind of within our borders, you know, we'll control the world financially. But banks actually don't have a reach that goes far beyond that. Banks are not limited to borders. I can put, you know, bank, I can do banking in Mexico City or banking in Santiago, Chile or, or banking in Paris. It doesn't matter. It's in probably with the same city bank. Um, they traverse borders without any problem. What's interesting with banks is that there's a long, long history about how they became what they are and, and how, what they do to do it. But in the United States, they've enacted the, this kind of a cartel relationship with legislators to enable them to ensnare people into debt at the age of 18. At the legal age where most people are not even allowed to go into a bar and buy a beer, they can sign a $100,000 debt contract for student loans to go to a college they've never been to to study something they don't know about on a field that they have no idea if they'll ever use in their life, and chances are they won't, but they'll still walk away with this debt, and that debt can never be discharged in a bankruptcy. It's the perfect storm. I mean, it's the absolute, it's the gift that keeps on giving to banking. But by doing that, and eventually let's say you do pay that off, stage two is they will get you ensnared into debt based on credit cards, 
car loans and, and other short-term non-secured uh, loans. And then after you've gotten used to paying that because you kind of never stop it, they get you snared into the idea of a, of a principal residence, a house, because we all want a roof over our head. Um, and so they bring in this term, this French word, mortgage. Do you know what that translates to in French? No. Death contract. <laughs> right. So the death contract comes out, 30 years of it, and you're expected to pay them every single month in the matter of thousands. And by the time you finish that, and hopefully you've paid it off before you get a chance to retire, then you hope that you have, amongst all of this adversarial debt behavior of, you know, student loans and car loans and credit card bills and, and you know, medical debt, because God forbid you fall down, um, and then the mortgage, assuming you got through all of that, then what's left you get to retire on? And where do you put that money? You give it straight back to the very same banksters who are going to lend it to the next poor 18-year-old schmuck and the circle of life continues. This is our world. Um, most people fall prey to it. way I work is that I'll only ever take debt if somebody else is going to pay it off for me. And that would be a mortgage for a, for a rental property. If I buy a property and I borrow money, I'm going to borrow and pay it off in 15 years and I'm going to have the tenant pay it off. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just going to, you know, be the custodian and attend to the property because I know it's going to go up in value on average 4% a year and I'll get all these beautiful little tax breaks from it, which is great. But ultimately the rents, I'm just going to put straight back on the mortgage and just let the tenant pay it off. And 15 years from now, I'm going to have a freehold piece of property that's worth probably five times what I paid for it. And if I do that on scale, I'll never work another day in my life. Not a bad deal when you consider 15 years of working career. And most people are going to be looking at 40 plus. And then they're, they're statistically not likely to have any money left at the end of that working career to retire on. And what have I got? Millions of dollars in real estate assets. This isn't rocket science and it sure doesn't take a high school graduate to talk about it, right? Um, I, I tell people this story and, and I hope it resonates, but when I was a teenager, I used to go surfing with all my mates in Australia. You know, we all live on the coast and I was a really bad surfer. I went out in the water and got pummeled and beaten up and bruised and surfboards hitting me in the back of the head and I was useless. But I just had this sort of like, if I don't master the wave, I'm not a man, you know, <laughs> stupid idea, but I'd go out there anyway. And my mates seemed to be doing it and I couldn't work out why. And then one day, I, I, maybe it was about third day of being beaten up out there in the, in the ocean. And I started realizing uh, there are patterns here. Waves sort of are on the horizon. You see them emerge out of nothing and then they, they, they form. And, and you, the only way you can catch them is you have to be in front of them and you have to be paddling before they get to you because otherwise they'll just pass you by and dump on you. And I started realizing with all this time on my hands sitting out there in the ocean, that's like life. Everything emerges from something and you pick your wave. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's the stock you're buying. I don't know. Maybe it's a real estate asset. You pick the wave and it comes upon you. And the key is you've got to pick it before it becomes upon you you've got to paddle before it becomes upon you. you've got to be in front of it and then the natural energy of the wave will pick you up and transfer it to you and give you the ride of your dreams 
that's how you buy stocks. That's how you buy real estate. That's how you buy everything. And that's why people call me a contrarian. I'm not a contrarian, I'm a surfer. I go out and I buy something when it's no one wants it because I'm in front of the wave seeing it coming. And when I start paddling and everyone's looking at me going, what the hell are you doing, Miles? Are you wasting your time paddling? And then all of a sudden the wave comes out of nowhere and lifts me up and transports me forward. And they go, holy cow, I wish I saw that coming. It's like, how many times have I had those damn conversations? You know, old mates I went to school with are telling me, Miles, should I buy Bitcoin? I'm like, why didn't you ask me that in 2011? Because that's when I did. But no, they want to buy it now and they just get wrecked. Just like the surfer get dumped on trying to catch the wave that's already upon them. It doesn't work like that. Timing is everything. Didn't take college or school to teach me that. Took me going out and getting wet and beaten up. But if you're not willing to get off the beach, you'll never get that lesson. Got it. No, that's a great analogy. That's, uh, you know, because I think so many people look at it um, from a little more short-sighted, right? They're, their thought of timing the market is something like, oh, when, when something dips down, then buy. And, but really like we're seeing in the market today, um, would you agree that right now might be a good time to buy some of these repressed assets in the market? Uh, yeah. If in fact they are showing their true level and one would have to look at all the indicators and you have to make a punt in the same way that not all waves are going to be great and you just have to punt on them. So, you know, like anything, you don't go into a market with money that you can't afford to lose. Yep. But at the same time, you, there's a difference between investing and speculating and investing is holding something because you believe in the project, you believe in what it does. And that means a lot more research, a longer term position, a longer term amount of research to go in in the first place. Speculation is gambling. Wall Street wants you to speculate. That's how they make money. Every mom and pop investor out there who's lost their shirt buying whatever stock made a hell of a lot of people who shorted that stock very rich. They want you to fail. So you have to understand speculation is the house always wins. It's going into the casino and just betting on black, knowing that you're always going to walk out a loser. That's a speculator. There, look, there are always exceptions to the rule, but look at the percentages. The exceptions represent 2 or 3% of the overall buying public. It's not in your favor. And that's why you want to pick something that you ultimately believe in, study, learn, embrace it, and then make the decision to pull the trigger and get in. But only if you believe in it. If you don't believe in it, you've got no business being there. And once you get in and you've made that investment that makes sense for you and that company that you believe in, then it's, then there better be a good reason for you to get out because the numbers have told us that while there may be dips year, year to year over the course of five, 10, 15, 20 years, these investments are going to go up and they're going to be pretty, provide a pretty healthy return. Yeah. And, and like all things, I mean, there are some waves that you, when the wave finishes, you get off and you look for the next one. Uh, and then there are other situations where you're looking to get yourself into something so that the inertia of the second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth wave can carry you forward from a position of strength. And that means you do have a long-term commitment to whatever you're involved in. It's particularly true of people, for example, who start small businesses. 
uh, it's never going to be an easy ride. You are taking the hardest possible route to money you can ever imagine. But if you believe in what you're doing, because it is what you're doing, you're doing it with your heart and with your soul, then you probably have enough tenacity to stay the course where you will get the eventual returns. It's not, there's no guarantees in life, but you know, if anything, I would go with something that I truly believed in. Nice. Well, this has been a great conversation. Miles Wakeham, his website is www.beunconstrained.com. He has the Unconstrained podcast. Now it says here that you spend about 50% of your time traveling the world. So what's the next trip? Where are we going next? Uh, 10 days, I'm back in Australia for a month. Um, then after that, I'm back here for about two weeks. And then I'm in Mexico for about five weeks. We'd be doing a big property build down there. Uh, after that, I've got, I've got a bunch of frequent flyer miles that are about to die on me for Europe. So I said to my wife, pick a country. Uh, I don't care. Where do you want to go? So I don't know. We'll probably end up in the Czech Republic or London or who knows. I've just got to burn these miles. Um, this is the problem with traveling. Once you start, they keep, you know, you eventually can't get off the damn plane <laughs> because the miles just keep generating, which is a good thing, I guess. But yeah, I spent a, about half the time that way. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. And it's certainly a good example of living your life unconstrained. So thank you very much, Miles. This was a great conversation. If you had one thing to leave my audience with, what would it be? Uh, that one, the rich don't have jobs. Just keep that in your mind. I couldn't think of a better way to end it. Thanks a lot, Miles. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life.